0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter six. As we continue our series in this letter, called gospel culture in God's household 1 Timothy chapter 6 One of my family's favorite movies of all time is the 2017 film The Greatest Showman This musical drama was inspired by the story of P.T. Barnum the 19th century creator of the circus that would later be known as the greatest show on earth hosted by the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. Uh, As I was researching that, it turns out that the last show of The Greatest Show on Earth was in 2017. They have since closed down, so I guess The Greatest Show no longer exists. Well, this film is many things. It's a story about a poor boy uh, who went from rags to riches through his hard work and determination. It's a, a story about how everyone should be treated with dignity no matter Uh, who they are or what they look like. Uh, But most of all, at least in my opinion, it's a story about contentment. It's a story about contentment and uh, the harm that is caused when we ignore contentment. Mr. Barnum is a man who has what you could say the best things in life. He has a loving wife who happily left her family wealth to marry him he has two beautiful daughters who are, who are full of wonder and imagination. He has friends who genuinely care for him, those whom he has met and recruited into his circus over the years. But none of it is enough. None of it's enough. He needs a bigger house. He needs to make more money. He needs to make his circus an even bigger success than it already is. Indeed, one of the songs in the middle of the song is titled, Never Enough. And the main verse in that song says, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough, never be enough. It's never enough for Mr. Barnum. And so he leaves his family on increasingly long Business trips in search of more success. He spends more time with the woman he hires to sing in his shows than he does with his own wife. And he starts using the people whom he's recruited to his circus as commodities rather than as friends. By the end of the film, it appears that he has lost everything. His circus has burned down, he's engulfed in scandal, and his wife has actually moved out of their house and moved back in with her parents. And it's at that point that he finally comes to his senses and realizes that all that he had been chasing had meant nothing to him. Nothing at all. In the final song of the film, and our favorite song in the Tong household, he sings For years and years I chased their cheers, the crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember who all this was for. He realizes that he had been focusing so much on the what, on his wealth and success and his fame that he had forgotten all about the who. His family and his friends. And so he seeks them out. He, he asks for their forgiveness. He makes th- things right with them and he learns to be content. Well, contentment is a rare quality but it is an essential one because discontentment is Dangerous, and it is illustrated by the greatest showman. Uh, discontentment hurts us, and it hurts those around us. Contentment is so important that the Puritan pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, wrote an entire book on it, and he titled it, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. In that book, he writes that to be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty Glory and excellence of a Christian. So why is it that contentment is so valuable? And why is it so hard for us to obtain? Why does uh, Pastor Burroughs call it a rare jewel? Especially when it should be a staple in each of our lives, Well, that is what the Apostle Paul is going to address today as he nears the end of his letter to his uh, young friend, this young pastor named Timothy. He wants to make it absolutely clear that contentment is one of the keys to living a gospel culture in God's household. And it is a lesson that we would do well to learn as well. So let me begin reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'll begin in the second half of verse two and I'll read to the end of verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, it does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, the title of this sermon is The Power of Christian Contentment. The Power of Christian Contentment. We're going to break up our text today into three points. First, contentment preserves community. Second, contentment sees reality. And third, contentment guards the soul. Let's begin with our first point, contentment preserves community. Paul begins in verse 2 by reminding Timothy of his pastoral responsibility. He says, teach and urge these things. Teaching is the primary way that pastors care for their flocks. There are many ways that pastors care for their flocks through Counsel through uh, through counseling, through prayer, through leadership. But the heart of pastoring is teaching. Pastoring is done primarily through instruction in sound doctrine and the proclamation of God's word with a focus on application. That is why he says teach and urge. Pastoring happens when instruction turns to exhortation or when explanation turns to application. Now Paul says, teach and urge these things, which likely refers to all that he has said in his letter so far. Timothy is to keep teaching about the gospel. He is to keep teaching about the nature of the church. He is to keep teaching about the goodness of all that God has created for us to enjoy. And he is to urge the church to pray. He is to urge the church to pursue godliness. He is to urge the church to show honor to whom honor is due. And most importantly, he is to urge the church to pursue love, to do all things in love, to love God and to love neighbor from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But there were some in the church who refused to be taught because they believed that they had something different, something better to be taught themselves. In verse three, Paul says that they were teaching a different doctrine, they were teaching things that didn't agree with what he calls the sound words, literally the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what verse 3 shows us that is that the Apostle Paul saw himself not just as writing on his own behalf, but on the behalf of Jesus Christ himself. We know from a theological perspective that Paul wrote as one who was inspired by the Spirit, which is why we treat his words as God's words. But verse three shows us that he himself had that self-understanding, that his words were the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that it was Christ who was speaking through him. Paul knew that it was the spirit of Christ who moved him and inspired him to write this letter. Paul knew that to disregard his words was to disregard the words of Christ. And so to teach a different doctrine than Paul's doctrine was to disagree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. These people, he says, were also disagreeing with the teaching that accords with godliness. They were abandoning the very truths that would produce a godly life. Godliness doesn't just come from any teaching. It doesn't come from from teaching that we self-manufacture from human wisdom. It only comes from teaching that agrees with the sound doctrine of Christ. The truth that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. That he came into the world as a man. That he lived a sinless life in obedience to God's law. That he suffered and died on the cross as the substitute sacrifice for sinners. That he rose from the dead on the third day physically and bodily. That he ascended to heaven after 40 days. That he sat down at the right hand of God the father. And that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead the righteous to everlasting life and the unrighteous to everlasting judgment. These are the truths that produce godliness. These are the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ that lead to a godly life. Nothing else will do because godliness can't be self-manufactured. Godliness can't be manipulated by false teaching. It can only be produced by the sound doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on to explain why these teachers were teaching a different doctrine. In verse 4, he says that they were puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. Paul knows that this isn't just a matter of theological disagreement, this isn't just a matter of a difference of opinions, it's a matter of the heart. These teachers were puffed up with conceit, they were full of pride. They were disagreeing with sound doctrine because they were arrogant and conceited. They they thought they knew better, that they had the secret knowledge that no one else did. Such men show that they understand nothing. Paul continues in verse four by saying that they had an unhealthy craving for controversy, literally a, a sick appetite for what is controversial. They, they didn't agree with the healthy words of the Lord Jesus Christ because their desire for knowledge itself was sick. They were longing for the wrong things. They didn't want the same old gospel. They wanted what was new, what was controversial because it was through the controversial that they would exalt themselves as those who were superior and show the world that they knew better than everyone else. And if only more people followed them, they believed that the world would be a better place. Well, that made them the kinds of people, verse four continues, who quarrel about words. They quarrel about words. You've probably met people like that. They they nitpick on what you say. They parse your language. They're always disagreeing with what you have to say because they love how it makes them feel. They, They love feeling powerful, The the power of being disagreeable and showing themselves to be in the know when everyone else isn't. And they believed that if only they could attract more people to their controversial appetites, then the church would truly flourish. But nothing could be further from the truth. Paul says that such people and their attitudes and their approaches to truth produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth. In other words, these people, they don't build communities. They destroy them. They tear them apart. Because, listen, if you try to build a community with a disagreeable personality, you're going to attract disagreeable people. Suspicious people attract suspicious people. And it's only a matter of time because they all, before they all become suspicious of one another. And so if you want a recipe for how to kill a community, you, you want the pattern for how to destroy a church, then start focusing on all that is controversial. Start majoring on all that is minor. Start talking about how you can't trust anyone out there and that you know something that the rest of the world doesn't know. If you do, you'll probably gain a following. People will find you interesting. Your social media accounts will probably light up. Perhaps the internet world will start talking about you. But over time, the community you build will implode on itself as people turn on each other. By way of a footnote, do we not see that with the Q and non-conspiracy theories? These people who love to quarrel about words, who have an unhealthy craving for controversy. Is not their community falling apart now that Mr. Trump has lost uh, the election? We see this happening not only now, but throughout history. Suspicious people attract suspicious people. And it's only a matter of time before they become suspicious of one another Paul knows what's going on in the hearts of these false teachers. They are puffed up with conceit and at the end of verse five he says, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. That is what's motivating them to disagree with sound doctrine. It wasn't just pride that was motivating these teachers. It was greed. It was greed. It was greed for influence, greed for power, greed for success, greed for wealth that would come from attracting people to themselves and they were going to use the church to get them these things. They would put on a facade of godliness and pretend that they had concern for the church when they really only had concern for themselves. My friends, this is the first reason why contentment is so important. Contentment is what preserves the church from all that we see in verses four and five. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. We know that that churches die from anger, unforgiven sin, bitterness, pride, But, but Paul shows us that churches also die because of greed, because of greed. Greedy hearts poison the church. And so if we are to preserve the church from this poison, we must obtain the rare jewel of Christian contentment. The kind of heart that says, I don't, I don't need attention. I don't need influence. I don't need power. I don't need people to follow me for me to feel significant. I don't need the controversial. All I need, all I need is found in Christ and in Christ alone. In Christ's church, in Christ's word, in the person of Jesus Christ. All I need are the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Contentment preserves community. Contentment preserves the church. But but what is contentment and where does it come from? How do we pursue this rare jewel? Where do we find it? Well, this leads to our second point. Contentment sees reality. Jeremiah Burroughs defines contentment as follows. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That is so helpful. And uh, isn't it challenging? It's not challenging because uh, submitting to God is, is difficult that that's easy at least when it comes to the easy times in our lives when, when life is unfolding the way that we want it to uh, this this definition this this picture of Christian contentment is so difficult because of those last two words that we freely submit to and delight in God's wise and follow the disposal in every condition in every condition not just when life is good not just when life is pleasant but when life is hard when life is painful, when life is not unfolding the way that you thought it would. That is what makes contentment a rare jewel. Paul shows us the value of this contentment in verse six in what you could say is one of the most memorable verses in the New Testament. He writes, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And he contrasts that with what the false teachers were saying They were saying godliness is a means of gain. Godliness plus wealth is gain. Godliness plus power is gain. Godliness plus influence is gain. But Paul says godliness plus nothing is great gain. You don't need anything else than godliness to be happy. All you need is to see the godliness that we have in Christ with a heart that is full of contentment and you already have great gain. There is no risk involved in this investment. You are guaranteed to have the great gain that God promises in his word. That's the difference that contentment makes. It makes us realize that we don't need anything but Christ and the godly life that he offers us to be happy It makes us realize that what Jesus has done to die on the cross for our sins, what Jesus has done to suffer the wrath of God against us as our substitute, what Jesus is doing in our lives by his spirit to make us godly, that is enough. That is enough. We don't need power or Prosperity. We don't need to leave a lasting legacy that the world will talk about for generations. Christ is enough. The godliness that he gives us is already great gain. And Paul helps us grasp this by citing this familiar biblical principle in verse 7. He writes, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. This isn't Paul's original material. This is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, which we read earlier in our service. Ecclesiastes chapter five, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. This is the wisdom of Job who wrote, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. And now we see that it is the wisdom of Christ himself who spoke through his servant Paul that we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. You know, when someone wealthy dies, people often have back corner discussions, whispers, and they ask, Well, how much did he leave behind? Well, the answer, every time, is everything. Everything. It doesn't matter if they were bankrupt or billionaires, everyone leaves everything behind. People can try all they want to bring their treasures from this world into the next like the ancient pharaohs who loaded up their pyramids, their catacombs with treasures and servants. They buried themselves with their wives with the hope that they would carry all that to the afterlife. You can't take anything with you. You will leave this world in the same way that you entered it, with nothing. Well, if that is true, then why would we put our hope in what will ultimately become nothing because that's what greed promises you. Greed promises you a whole lot of comfort, success, and recognition in this world that ultimately becomes nothing. Greed is a craving for a vapor in the wind. Greed is a pointless attempt to try to build and to sink down our roots into a world that is passing away. But godliness, godliness is something else Godliness, as Paul told us in chapter four, has value in every way, holding promise both in this life and also the life to come. Godliness never fades away. Godliness can never be taken from us. Godliness has lasting value both in this life and in the life to come. The more we realize this, the more we will become content. Contentment comes from from seeing reality as it truly is. It comes from the ability to discern what truly matters, what truly lasts from all that is fading away. Contentment comes from being able to see that the kingdoms that we build in this world are nothing but sand castles that will wash away on the shores of time, but godliness will last forever forever. When contentment sees reality as it truly is, verse eight becomes possible. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. We will be content if we have the basic necessities of life. And so do you have food and clothing? Do you have food and clothing? But then you can be content. Though you don't have the job that you want, you don't have the time with the friends that you want. If you have food and clothing, you can be content. If you have Christ, you can have that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Every condition. Whether we have the freedom of living in a non-pandemic world, or whether we live in a lockdown, we can delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, if Jesus is your greatest treasure. And so, come to Jesus. Receive his grace and forgiveness, and you will find the rest of a contented soul. Now, contentment is so important that Paul finds it necessary to add a second warning about the dangers of neglecting it, and that leads to our final point. Contentment guards the soul. Look at verse nine. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now let's begin first by addressing what this verse does not say. This verse does not say that having wealth is wrong. We know that because later in chapter six, Paul will actually address the wealthy Christians in Timothy's church. He says, as for the rich in this present age, well, what does he say? Does he rebuke them for having wasted their lives in the pursuit of wealth or the accumulation of wealth? No, he, he says, charge them not to be haughty, but to be rich in good works. He doesn't rebuke them. Instead, he he." he Exhorts them to have the right view of their wealth so that they would use it as stewards of what God has entrusted to them. Having wealth isn't a sin. If it were, then we'd all be in trouble because, compared to the vast majority of the world, we are all stinking rich. We are all wealthy beyond the imagination of most of the population of the world. Every one of us enjoys a quality of life that most of the world could only dream of. For those who have been in foreign countries, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, I spent three weeks in Cambodia on a short-term missions trip. We visited remote villages. And right there, as we gathered with the people in this village, the, the children were just peeing right there on the ground, the same ground that they were playing in the same ground that their parents were walking by, the same ground that their chickens were were running around on. They had nothing. We're trying to bring them clean water and to bring them the good news of the gospel. That's what the majority of the world looks like. It doesn't look like Canada. We have food in the fridge. We have clean water to drink. We have workers who come to our homes and takes all our garbage away. These are luxuries, not necessities. And they are comforts that most of the world has never experienced. But we don't need to repent of these things. We need to express our gratitude to the Lord and to use the riches that he has entrusted to us to be rich in good works. And so the problem here isn't having wealth. The problem here is desiring wealth. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptations. And that means that it's not just the rich that Paul is speaking to here. This is not just the temptation for those who are already rich. It is a temptation for anyone because anyone can desire to be rich. Not just those who are already rich, but those who are poor. John Stott puts it well when he writes, this passage is not for poverty against wealth, but for contentment against wealth. Covetousness. And so those who desire to be rich have chosen covetousness over contentment. And the consequence is they fall into this pattern in verse 9. They they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is what one commentator calls a violent chain reaction. The desire to be rich becomes a falling into temptation, not just a facing of temptation. All of us face temptation daily. This becomes a falling into temptation, the temptation to cut corners at work, the temptation to neglect your family as you devote more of your time and energy to your business, the temptation to become so immersed in the world that the unseen spiritual world that is to come no longer matters to you. You fall into those temptations because of your desire to be rich. And once that happens, once you fall into temptation, you have fallen into a snare. You have fallen into the devil's trap. The devil has you right where he wants you, away from God, away from his word, and likely away from his people. He picks you off like a wolf looking for the lone sheep. But he doesn't do that by killing you. He does it by taking that desire to be rich and multiplying it. He he feeds the, the flames of your evil desires and it becomes many senseless and harmful desires. And so the desire to be rich no longer remains by itself. It becomes the desire for recognition, the desire for success, the desire to become famous, the desire to outdo your neighbors. Many senseless and harmful desires are multiplied out of this root desire to be rich. And that is Satan's strategy because it is not evil demons that destroy us. It is evil desires that condemn us. These are what plunge people into ruin and destruction because that is what leads to God's judgment. Jesus said that there is coming a day when many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do this and that in your name? And Jesus will declare, I never knew you Depart from me you workers of lawlessness because it is not those who claim allegiance to Jesus who will enter the kingdom of heaven but it is those who do the will of the father and you cannot do the will of the father if you are too busy doing your own in the pursuit of your evil desires. All this starts with the desire to be rich. But it doesn't end there. Verse 10 says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. All kinds of evils come from this simple desire to be rich. The evil of moral compromise. The evil of neglecting your family. The evil of cutting yourself off from the life of the church. The evil of deadening your heart to the gospel. I mean that is where this ultimately goes. Let's not fool ourselves. Paul couldn't be clearer. The desire to be rich doesn't just diminish your spiritual life, it destroys it. Paul says that he's seen how it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves, literally impaled themselves with many pangs. Perhaps you know someone like that. Someone who has abandoned all the hope of eternal life, for the fleeting, vanishing riches of this world. Perhaps you yourself are in danger of becoming that person yourself. If so, you need to hear this warning. Don't desire to be rich. Don't love money because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Instead, guard your soul through cultivating contentment. And contentment will keep you from this violent chain reaction, from letting this poison seed embed itself deep in your heart that will give rise to many evils. Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God if you are serving money. And contentment is what leads us back to God again and again and reminds us that he is enough. In his classic book, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks says that Satan's most common strategy in tempting us to sin is to present the bait and to hide the hook. He's fishing for us. He presents the golden cup and he hides the poison. He offers you the profit and pleasure of this world, but he conveniently forgets to mention that it will lead to you missing out on the eternal profit and pleasure of being in the presence of God. And so he writes, adversity has slain her thousand, but prosperity her 10,000. My friends, if you let the love of money lead your life, you're walking right into a snare of the devil you are biting down on the bait that he's going to use to reel you in to eternal destruction. And so we must guard our soul with the rare jewel of contentment. So How do do we do that? How do we grow in this wonderful virtue that is unique to those who are found in Christ? Well, you must meditate deeply on this truth that you brought nothing into the world And you can't take anything out of it. This is the grace of remembering that we will die. Remember that you must die. That was the watchword of the medieval Christians memento more. Remember that you must die. And when you die, you will face your Maker, not with the business that you built, not with the wealth that you accumulated but the godliness that you have received by grace, through faith, in Christ. You must remember that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You're already rich in every way that matters. You have the forgiveness of sins. You have adoption as God's beloved children. You have eternal life. What could possibly compare to the deep and full and satisfying riches that we have in Christ. Wealth will make you more comfortable in this life. It will. It will lessen your suffering. It will give you more recognition. But it will not make you happier. Less suffering does not mean more happiness. Less suffering just means less suffering. More happiness, if we are to find happiness that truly lasts, happiness that truly satisfies, satisfies, it is only found in Christ. And so, when you think about wealth, when you start to develop or to feed the growing desire for riches and wealth in your heart, then don't just think about what you're going to gain. Think about what you're going to lose. In his commentary on First Timothy, Philip Ryken wisely writes, discontent is life's burglar. It robs every other experience of its God-given joy. Someone who is discontent is always operating at a loss. Remember that. You might think that godliness is a means of gain, that wealth will finally make you happy. Well, if the wealth that you already have hasn't made you happy now, what makes you think that the wealth that you will have then will satisfy? Are you operating at a loss because of discontentment? Are you constantly trying to shake this feeling that life isn't enough? That if you only had that, that one thing that remains out of your grasp, that career, that job, that salary, that appearance, that recognition, then, then everything would be fine? Then don't be deceived. Don't bite the bait. Because if you're not satisfied now, you will not be satisfied then. The only thing that will satisfy is Christ. Not wealth, not riches, not, not the whole world. Only Christ will satisfying and that is why contentment is so valuable my friends that is why it is a rare jewel because it reveals to us just how much we have in Christ and just how much we risk giving up if we would pursue the riches and wealth of this world contentment shows us that godliness is enough the godliness of justification the godliness of sanctification, they are enough for us so that if we have food and clothing, we will be content. We will be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so let us continue, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, to pursue godliness. Let us pursue contentment to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how you have blessed us with all of our physical, material needs. How we live in such comfort. And we want grace to celebrate and to be grateful for all of that without giving in to the temptation to always want more. Father, if that has been us, we We confess that and we wanna repent of it. We wanna turn away from love of money and desire for riches and turn to the love of God and the desire for Christ. Let us be able to say with all our hearts, godliness with contentment is great gain. And let us model for the world in these days, for our coworkers, for our neighbors, for our family members, that we can be content because we have Christ, and nothing can take him away from us. Help us, O Lord, give us this joy. Guard our souls, our church, our community from the poison of greed. By the grace of contentment, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.